be praying for our teachers and our students and our teachers. <laughs> I know some of the kids in there personally, so. Our children need you, so let us continue to pray for them, that God may call them to themselves. We're starting a new one today, a new book, Hey Guy. I think I heard uh, one person say uh, uh, one of the things they're getting out of it is now they know where all these books in the Bible are. <laughs> small steps, small steps. It's great to, to be able to come into God's Word together and to continue to worship Him. This is not just you getting to listen to me for 30 to 40 minutes, depending upon how things go. This is an act of worship. It's an act of worship for me. It's an act of worship for you. So let us continue to worship God together as we open his word together to see what he has to say for us. Before we do that, let me pray. Father God, we just come together to worship you. To open up your word together to see uh, how you have revealed yourself to us specifically in your inerrant word. Lord, I just pray that you continue to open up our hearts and our minds. And Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified, that your name is magnified and lifted up high. And I can't do that on my own. So Lord, by your spirit, Holy Spirit, use this sermon to bring glory to your name. May you open up our hearts and our minds to what you have to say today. May our hearts not be hard uh, to your word. Use this, word, your, use this sermon, Lord, to bring joy to your people, salvation to the lost. And amen. So if you had a chance to flip over and find Haggai, Haggai chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. If you don't, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, and you're more than welcome to take that home if you don't have one. And it says this. The word of the Lord says this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth was withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and all that, uh, all on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, and, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priests, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God has sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shietiel, governor of Judah, and the Holy Spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let me ask you this question. How do you know what's taking priority in your life? How do you know that? If someone were to come up to you and say, hey, what is the most important thing in your life? How? And you could say whatever, right, at that moment. You could say the good Christian answer, oh, Jesus. (laughs) Clearly it's Jesus. But my follow-up question would be is, "Well, well, how do I know that? How, 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 yeah, how do I know what your priorities are in your life? For a family man, you may come up and say, oh, my family is my priority. Well, how, how do they know that they are a priority in your life? For here, this is exactly what is coming out here. How do I know if God's priorities are my priorities? How do I know if that's true? And that's what's happening here in Haggai. The people of God have been in exile. That's what's happened. They were in exile. They did not listen to God, all the previous prophets, and God did exactly what he promised he would do if they continued to live in the way that they did. And he brought them out of the promised land, out of Israel, and brought them into exile. He brought them into Babylon. But God keeps his promises, does he not? And God said, you will be in exile for 70 years. And God, again, provided a way for them to return home 70 years later. As the Babylonians were taken over by the Persian Empire, the Persian Empire king, the king allowed his people to return home. So they marched on home. They got into Israel. And and some of the people that came back saw, as a child, obviously, what was previous. And we'll get into that later on in chapter 2. But now he comes here. And in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. That's very specific, by the way. Haggai is ministering to the Jews who have returned from exile. They've been in the land for over 20 years which is part of the problem that we see here. 
So what we see here in Haggai is a confrontation between God and his people about priorities. And at this moment, everyone's like, oh no, a pastor's going to preach a sermon on building project or something. (laughs) And that is not the point of this text. That's another part in the Bible. See, we have this challenge, a challenge to reassess things in these first few verses. In, chapter, in verses 1 to 11, there's a challenge to reassess. In verse, in verse 1, it, came, it comes to this, came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. The authority that Haggai is coming here as he confronts the people of God is not his own authority, but he's coming by the hand of God. They're his words. He is God's instruments to proclaim this warning to God. And even in this challenge, you see a lot of grace of God in this. Even throughout all of these other minor prophets that we have looked at, we see God over and over again sending people saying, turn around. Turn around. That's God's grace. His mercy. He's saying, come around. Turn around. And it comes to these two guys, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. See, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Say that fast ten times. Is the grandson of the former king of Judah, who is in exile. But even in this text, there's a reminder of this, is who's on the throne in Jerusalem at this time is not the king of, uh, from the king of David. It's the king Darius. It's a, it's a foreign king. There's still consequences to the actions that have come. And God's promises is to have an eternal uh, a king on the throne is not being fulfilled. And we know that that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But again, that's another sermon. And Joshua was, uh, was filling the spiritual role of the community. We see here both uh, the words coming first to the civic and the religious leaders of the land, and then through them it goes to the whole community. Those have been brought back. The Lord of hosts has something to tell you. See, even though Zerubbabel and Joshua are under the authority of the king of Persia, Haggai knows that there is a higher authority who is the Lord of hosts. What a great statement about God's greatness and his might. The Lord, the one who created all things that is around you, he is telling you something. So essentially he's saying, listen up. It's like the equivalent of the teacher grabbing the meter stick in school and slapping it on your desk. Are you listening? I had a teacher like that. I thought he was crazy. The Lord of hosts has something to say. The, the, the people in verse 2 coming on, this says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, you catch that? These people? Do you catch the tone that changes throughout this passage here? First it starts addressing these people with these people. It's like when you're frustrated with your kids and you say to your wife or to your husband, you know your children? <laughs> That's what's happening right here. These people, these people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. But like I said before, there's a bit of a problem here. It's been 20 years. 
That's a lifetime for some people. That's the difference between being born and being married with kids in some cultures. 20 years. They've been saying, oh, it's not time yet. It's not time, God. It's not time, God, for for us to build your temple. It's not time yet. And then the word comes to Haggai, the prophet, again, and he says in verse 4, it is, and this is this amazing rhetorical question, right? You can feel the implications of what is happening. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while the house of the Lord is in ruin? For me, when I think paneled, I'm thinking of that, you know, that old school basement stuff? <laughs> that looks awful, right? That's not what this is talking about. See, the whole idea of paneled housing is, is a sense of comfortable. They're comfortable. Their houses are, are, are rich. They, they, they're well established. They're, 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 they're great homes. They've, they've put their granite countertops in and their stainless steel appliances. And they're still saying, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. And the question that comes up to me is this, is why is God so concerned with the building of his house? Why is he so concerned with the building of the temple? See, God's house, the temple, had two functions that we need to remember about. It had, this is the place where the sacrifice of sin was taking place, but it was also where the glory of God dwelt. See, their neglect of the temple over the past two decades really shows an indifference to to God's dwelling with them and their own sin. See, again, this has nothing to do with the building project. This has something to do with something far greater than a building. Does our God need a house? No. He owns everything. He doesn't need a house. But what does it show us? Is this people's apathetic? They're apathetic towards what God has done. They for pursuing their own needs first. The people had failed to live as the covenant, the promise people of God. So in turn, the God withholds the covenant promise. See, it represented God's dwelling place with his people and was where sacrifices were offered to remove the guilt of sin. Folks, for 20 years, longer than 20 years, their whole exile, plus the 20 years, they have not been dealing with the sin in their life. Nor have they cared about the presence of God. You see why God might be a little concerned with what's going on here? The people of God had been without a place of sacrifice in God's dwelling for so long. So let's give the benefit of doubt here, right? Let's give the benefit of doubt because we can do that. Let's be the devil's advocate. I like to do that because it's just fun. Maybe they thought all the stuff that was happening was happening because they were still under the curse of the 70 years of exile. Maybe. Maybe. So maybe all of the uh, agricultural problems, all of the, all of the uh, 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 fields that weren't producing as much food as they thought they should, maybe, God, that was happening because, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe we're still under that, that, that covenant curse for disobeying you 70-odd years ago. Maybe. Maybe they didn't want to be like King David in 2 Samuel 7, 
who thought that he was good enough to build the kingdom of God. And God's response to him was, for my sake, your hands have been filled with blood. You cannot build my temple. Maybe, right? Or, or maybe it was just simply pragmatic. Resources are pretty scarce. Maybe it was just about giving priority to their own material needs. You know, the Persians historically at this period of time were getting ready to invade Egypt. And as a vassal states, their responsibility was to do what? To, to, to produce and to give resources to their emperor in Persia for the invasion of Egypt. Well, maybe, so maybe things were just scarce. See, whatever the reason that was given to justify not rebuilding the temple, it's pretty clear what happens in this next few verses, right? In verse 3 it says, Then the word of the Lord came to the hand of the prophet. And he says in verse 4, Hold on. Why is your house all built and mine's not? You know, sometimes, not every time, This is more of a rabbit trail, but it's important. Sometimes, not every time, what happens is because of sin. Okay? But sometimes it is. You know, sometimes you wonder why we're so financially having so many problems. And we're like, oh God, you're just not providing. Well, but if you keep spending your money like loosey-goosey all the time, then obviously there's going to be ramifications of that. Right? Right? Because how can we expect God's blessing if we aren't being obedient ourselves? I'm not talking about the blessings here as a sign of God's presence. The point is that they didn't have God's presence at all. Not that they were going to get more stuff. They just didn't have God's presence at all. For, for, for what we'll break into eventually here is, is all these agricultural things were tied to the very presence of God being with his people. That's what they were a sign of. And with all of the mess that was happening as they were in the promised land, it was a sign that God's presence wasn't there and they still continued to not care. They continued to put their granite countertops in their house and not care about the presence of God. As we see in verse 4, the people are saying that they're just not, that it's just not the time yet. A few years ago, I was listening to a speaker, and he talked about our relationship to kids. Uh, He was talking to a group of men, uh, aging from 12 all the way up, but it was important for even those kids to hear, is how do I know Again, that question, how do I know my kids, my family is a priority? What happens when I say to my kid, I'm just too busy? Right? They come up to me and say, let's use an example. Dad, let's play catch. And I say, you know what? I'm just too busy right now. What does that tell them? That's the heart-wrenching problem, right? What is this saying right now? When we see the people of God saying to God, it's just not time yet. So what's going on here? The people had procrastinated on the building of God's house to work on their own. And this rhetorical question exposes the core problem, prioritizing self-interest ahead of God's purpose. They had selfishly sought their own comfort over obeying what God has asked them to do. 
They were no longer seeking first the kingdom of God. They were seeking their own comfortable. And you see that again in those panel houses, these elaborate houses with wooden walls and wooden ceilings. They live in a comparative luxury while God's house lies in ruin. They had used the resources to build their own homes that they said weren't available for God's house. You know, we see that all the time when people say, oh, I don't have any money. And you're looking around and going, what? So God comes in verse 5, says, consider your ways. Hey, how is this going for you? How are your sense of priorities working out for you? The answer is not. They desired to flourish and instead they were failing, all because they had rejected God as the primary object of their worship. Their agricultural problems are God's curse for disobeying the promise, the covenant that he had. In verse 6, it says, You have sown much and harvested little. God was frustrating their efforts because their lack of concern for his glory. You ever feel like you're just running a rat race, like you're in one of those hamster wheels? That's what they are going through. They're like going through their checklist, right? Uh, good soil, check, okay. Got the rain, got the seed. And then they're going, why is this not working? Consider your ways, he says. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages is not, does so to put them into a bag with holes. As I think about this, as the people of God were in the desert wandering for so many years, What do we learn about that small detail about the wearing out of their shoes and the wearing out of their clothes? It didn't happen. The presence of God versus no presence of God. See, God says, do something. He brings us somewhere and he equips and resources us to do those things. God isn't one of those awful people like your old boss who told you to do something but didn't train you nor equip you to do it. God says, I will tell you to do something and I will give you the ability to do it. And then he comes a second time in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Okay, so let's consider it again. Instead of working on your own place, why don't you go up to the hills, get some trees and chop them down and then bring them down and build my house? It's the second time that that God directs his people to walk differently in the future. And in verse 8, he says, Why? That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. The reason for the building of the temple is not for their own blessing, but for God's pleasure and glory. This is big. The last words that we see that God speaks for to his people is that I take no pleasure in you. And now we see God is willing to take pleasure in his people. Is that not a reflection of what we just learned about in Zephaniah last week? The God rejoicing over those whom he's redeemed? 
See, it's not necess- this isn't just about misplaced priorities. This is about pursuing their own houses and forsaking God. See, it's difficult in, 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 it's difficult in, in economic times that people were saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Though they were finding ways to build their own houses, God promised that if they built his temple, he would be with them. He would turn the world upside down and bring a long-desired Messiah. See, for you and for me, we too need to repent of our focus on building our own homes and not the Lord's. And I'm not talking about your physical home necessarily. It could be. It could be whatever my own comfortability, my own comfortable lifestyle. We need to pour our energies into building God's house, pursuing his purposes, while remembering that the visible symbol of his presence in the midst of his people is no longer a building but Jesus Christ himself. As Emmanuel, as God with us, Jesus physically represented God's presence among his people. When he cleansed the temple out in John 2, Jesus showed the true zeal of God's house that we often lack. And at the cross, he took upon himself the punishment we deserved for our self-centered focus on our own houses. Now that Jesus has ascended back to heaven, God's presence in the world is represented by his people, the church. As a body of Christ, the church is now the new temple, and we're called to build the house of God. So let us ask, let me ask this again. How do the people around you know what you are prioritizing? How does my life, how does my life, how does your life show the same priorities that God has? So there's a response that we see later on in verses 12 to 15 here. How we handle the challenge shows our hearts. So how do we respond? We see God's people respond. The response to God's challenge is in verses 12 to 15. In verse 12, it says this, When Zerubbabel, the son of Shietiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, with all the remnant... Whoa. You see the change? No longer are they these people. Now it's the remnants. Now it's the people of God. Why are they called that? The remnant of people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They obeyed. Their status has changed. They are now the remnant of God's people. They heard the voice of God and accepted the voice of God. They feared the Lord. This is the response that the people of God should have. Through the preaching of Haggai, God reorients the hearts of of the people who turn from indifference and disobedience to reverence and obedience. The change of heart leads to changed behavior. But then we see this beautiful thing here. In verse 13, we see God's response. 
Because so often we see God commanding uh, the people of God to do something, and there's a lot of fear, because oftentimes you're like, that looks impossible. They've got to be thinking about that too a little bit. They're still struggling with it. They still believe that there's not enough resources to build the Lord's house. They still believe that. But they obey. And they fear God. And then Haggai, in verse 13, the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I love this. I am with you. Declares the Lord. I am with you. This is in Hebrew, it's two short words. But these four words here, this is reassurance and hope, is it not? As the people come in obedience and fear, God gives them the promise that he is with them. Once he was against them with all of the crops failing, but now he is with them. As the people repent of their sin, they receive the greatest assurance possible, the presence of God himself with his people. God's gracious presence with his people is the heart of that covenant, that promised relationship. And then in verse 14, we see this wonderful thing here, their God. And the Lord stirred up the spirits. Of all these people, the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. One thing that I find always amazing is this as terrifying as it may be to be stepping out in obedience to our God, when I do that, it's amazing how my heart changes. Isn't it? It's it's amazing. See, for me, I'm not, I've said this before, I'm not uh, the classic evangelist. I'm not. I grew up very comfortable. A comfortable church, a comfortable life. I didn't have to worry about anything. And, and in, a, in, a, in a context where we didn't really have to pushy people to not be comfortable. It was good, it was kind, it was nice to be comfortable. But God tells me to do something very specific, right? And that's to go tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. And I don't like it. I don't. With all that's in me, I don't. But I'm still told to do it. But you know what happens when I actually pray with trembling that I may be bold with the gospel as I step out in obedience with faith? You know what happens? Suddenly, I have words to say when I didn't have them. Suddenly, I have clarity of thought. Suddenly, I, the presence of God is with you. We see that as, as the Spirit of God stirs them up. God himself brings about his people's response by his presence with them. God's spirit works successfully through his word, which Haggai has given in order to achieve his sovereign purpose. The outworking of repentance is renewed obedience. If I'm truly repented of something, I'm going to change. So, so what? What? 
through trust and obedience, God's people will have communion with him and be on mission as light to the nations. That's the so what. What is our response as Christians? What, what is this? How, if you haven't figured out how to apply this to yourself, let me help you here. What does this mean for you and for me? Build the house of the Lord. And I'm not talking about this church, this building. This isn't the church, by the way, this building where we meet, where we're blessed with. It's a blessing to be able to meet here. But I'm not talking about this. This is a building. I'm talking about build the house of the Lord. This passage isn't talking about a building project, which we may have one in a year or two. Let me, we'll talk about that another time. The temple was important because it is what we see in verse 8, that it brings pleasure to God that he may be glorified. Under the new covenant, the place of sacrifice in God's glory is now located in that one person, Jesus Christ. The once for all sacrifice on the cross is the only sacrifice for sin that God takes pleasure in. And what we look at in verse one, John 1, verse 14, Jesus himself is the ultimate dwelling place of God's glory. So for you and for me, to build the house of the Lord does not mean going to the hills and getting wood. Which, thankful for. It means building a spiritual house. By bringing people to Christ. Who then incorporates them as living stones into a new temple built on his cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ? Well, Haggai in chapter 1 told his original audience to build God's house. To us, he says, build God's kingdom. See, as a church, you've heard me say that we are called to be disciples of we're called to be disciples who are making disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our call. And people might think, oh, that's just a new slogan. No, it's biblical. It's in the Bible. It's there. It's in Haggai. You and me, me, you, all of you, are called to be faithful disciples who are making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not an option. It's a command. So when we come and we think that all of our ministries, all of our programs, it's like we're running like a hamster in a wheel and we're like, what is going on? Sometimes we've got to ask some hard questions. Sometimes I have to ask some hard questions. How are we discipling people? How are our ministries, the ministries we support, the the missionaries we support, our programs, our prayers, our, our actions, yes, even our money, how is it all working in the call to move people into a closer walk with Christ? Because that's the priority. That's the job. And how are we ourselves going out and making disciples of Jesus Christ? Are we bringing people to Christ? Are we lifting Christ up so high that other people can behold the glory of Christ? The gospel is so good. I really want other people to know it. We talked about that briefly at a prayer meeting. I'm not 
the outgoing type. Believe it or not, what I am on a Sunday is not what I am during the week. You can ask my wife. I'm going to go home and crash because I'm an introvert. But I'm still called to do something, right? And God has still gifted me in certain ways. So a few years ago on Halloween, where my Steph and I were talking about it, literally the whole neighborhood comes to your door. I'm not going to their door. There's no way. No way. I'm not knocking on doors and saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. But now they're coming to mine. Now they're on my property, suckers. <laughs> right? So we get these little bags, we get tons of candy, we spend more money than we probably should on candy. And we put the gospel tract in each of them. That's how God has equipped me. So the question comes to you, how has God equipped you? How in your personality, in who you are as a person, how are you being faithful to what God has called you to do to be disciples who are making disciples of Jesus Christ? You can come up with a whole slew of excuses, just like the people of God. But if I'm putting my comfort above what God has called me to do, I'm sinning and I need to repent of it. And I do it all the time. All the time. One of my favorite things to do is to go to a movie by myself. Yes, in a nice dark room, in the corner, with my popcorn and my pop. And jogging pants too, because I just don't care. And it's funny, right? And sometimes you just need that. I need to recharge and be by myself. But my whole mentality going to the movie is that I don't talk to anyone. You see the problem with that? You see the problem with my mentality? It's sinful. I should be open to being able to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ has died for my sins and he rose again. Yet not I, but Christ in me. What an amazing truth. Build the house of God. But I need to be clear that there may not be financial blessings that come from this. This is not what this passage is talking about. That is called prosperity gospel, and it is a false gospel. And anyone who proclaims it is a false teacher. I said it there. If you want, I can give you names, but I won't because people might get offended and miss the whole point of the sermon. The focus is to be on God, not self. The second thing is this, walk in trust and obedience to God's word. Instead of serving the Lord, the Israelites were serving themselves. The people did what Jesus says not to do, by overcoming, the, uh, by overcoming by anxieties about food and drinking of clothing. See, in Matthew 6, 23, 32, Jesus warns us not to be like the Gentiles who seek after all these things. Or like what we see in Haggai 1, verse 9, each rushing to his own house. Just as Haggai 1 called the generation to reconsider their ways, we get the same call to not prioritize my own materialistic security, my treasures here on earth, but instead to fear the Lord and walk in trust and obedience of his word. 
we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But praise God that he is gracious and merciful and uses a screwed up guy like me who's selfish all the time. And I'm going to just use me as an example because some people just don't like to acknowledge that they're selfish too. But there's not someone in this room who's not. Who, who's so gracious. And he's given us his word and calls us to consider our ways. And if you notice, God changes the people's hearts through the faithful preaching of a man. It's amazing what God will do. Will, how will you respond to the challenge to build God's kingdom? Will you say, not at this time? I, don't have, uh, I haven't taken an evangelism class. I, 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 whatever. I don't have money. I don't have... I'm an introvert. I'm, you know... By the way, not everyone is an introvert. There are some people who are extroverts. Okay? I don't, I don't want people to not like me. Right? I, don't, I, don't, I want to be liked. I don't want to offend anyone. In my Canadian culture, I don't want to offend anyone. Now, what are you going to do? Hagar once says to us, now is the time. It calls us to commit ourselves to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to make this our first priority, not what we did with the leftovers of our time and our resources. We are called to be disciples who are making disciples of Jesus Christ. And when the Lord of hosts tells you to do something, what is your response? When God tells you to jump, you jump praying that he's got something figured out for the bottom. <laughs> Through trust and obedience, God's people will have communion with him and be on mission as a light to the nations. It's hard. I don't always get it right. If you remember Corey McKenna preaching here a couple of times this past year, that guy's nuts. And maybe he'll watch this and he'll hear me say that. I'll get a text message saying, you called me nuts. I said, I've said it to your face. I'm not like that. The first time I've ever been involved in ministry in London was when I met Corey McKenna five years ago. And I got the short end of the stick, and my boss, my senior pastor, told me to come to London with a guy in our church who wanted to be equipped to be an evangelist because they needed a pastor to go with him. We had to go on the streets and share God. I don't, stranger danger, okay? I don't <laughs> do that. But God has equipped that man to do things in a certain way. How has God has equipped you to do what he has commanded you to do? We come up with excuses all day long. I get that it's hard. And I know you can get anxious. But if we are anxious that devoting our best endeavors and first fruits to the Lord will leave us short, we must trust the words of Jesus. Your heavenly Father knows that you what you need, the necessities of your life. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I'm not talking about a bigger bank account. I'm talking about the presence of God, which is far better than a bigger bank account. Through trust and obedience, God's people will have communion with him and be on mission as a light to the nations. Let me pray. Father God, we just thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. As we continue to worship you today, Lord, I pray that you are indeed glorified. I pray that we would remember what you have called us to do, Lord, that you would convict us of, of, of all the excuses we come up with in our life. May we seek first the kingdom of God. May we trust you to do what you called us to do. God, I pray that through our faithful obedience, you would revive our hearts Revive my heart. Would you revive the hearts of those in London? May you revive this city, Lord, as we are faithfully obedient to you. God, you can do great things. We read throughout history, church history, that you have done great things. Lord, I pray that you will use our weakness and magnify your name this day. And amen.